Thompson is a psychiatrist and author of The Soul of Desire and also The Soul of Shame. And he hosts the Being Known podcast. His new book is The Deepest Place, Suffering and the Formation of Hope. That's our topic today. Welcome, Dr. Thompson. Mark, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You, we jump right in here. You speak of people in a particular condition, quote, suffering has taken up residence in the deepest places of their souls. Now, this, this residence is, is more complicated than what we usually mean by, by oh, someone feels bad, so, so, someone's suffering. The residence metaphor is, is you, you mean that intentionally, don't you? I do. I do. This sense that uh, suffering is not a passing thing. Suffering is not a thing that we feel temporarily. It's not just about my skin knee. It's not just about uh, my uh, temporary upper respiratory infection, although it could be. But what we're really talking about is the human condition. We're really talking about, you know, we, we, uh, we like to kind of cordon Job off in the Bible. And we'll just we'll, we'll plant him where he belongs and we'll keep him there. And we'll say, oh, every now and then we'll have to visit Job. It, it's just a drag, man. Yeah. It, it, well, as I say in the book, uh, if I were going to buy a book like this, I'd want to buy a book that would help me learn how I won't I wouldn't have to suffer. Please give me that information. And yet I think that uh, um, when sitting with the people that I that I've been sitting with for the last 30 years reminds me that. Uh, we all carry within us spaces where suffering is taking place. And sometimes that suffering comes onto the front of the stage much more dramatically and much more um, kind of irresistibly uh, than in other times. But then it, it often, we, we, we tend to think that if I'm not immediately in the middle of something that is worthy of being called suffering, that somehow it's not even in the theater. But in fact, it perhaps has just moved off stage where I'm burning a fair bit of energy not having to pay attention to it. Uh, one of your one of your points about this residency uh, yeah. is it suggests when you say effectively naming their suffering is crucial. Is it that mm -hmm. people sometimes they don't quite know what the suffering is? It's inside them. It inhabits them. But but mm. sort of sort of, what is it? Is the naming part of the process of giving it a giving it a focus giving it giving it shape giving it objectivity in some in some sense oh there's no there's no question that is that it, that's that naming it is significant i mean in, in some respects mark we're all like the uh the two and a half to three-year-olds who believe that if they simply put their hands over their faces that people can't see them this sense that if I do the same thing with my suffering, then it doesn't exist. And we in the West in general, I mean, I mean, uh, no matter, I mean, all, all of our current moment of loneliness and so forth, notwithstanding, we have an extraordinary array of um, accessories that we can choose from that help me not pay attention to my suffering. They distract me, they keep my attention someplace else until my suffering uh, makes its again makes its way to the front of the stage, despite all of my efforts to keep it from being there. And I think you know one of the things that we like to talk about here is, is as far as the pandemic is concerned, that still feels like it's with us in some 
respects, despite the fact that it's now, you know, two and a half to three years in our rearview mirror, this, this sense that the pandemic didn't so much cause things as much as it pulled the curtain back and revealed things that had been true about who we are and our suffering and all the things that we put in its place in order to distract me from it. And so naming it is important because just like the second chapter of Genesis, when we name things, we then begin to tame them. We name things, we begin to work with it as a real thing, as opposed to burning all kinds of energy, trying to pretend that it doesn't exist. That energy then not being available for me to do actual healing work or even generative work of creating beauty and goodness in the world. I think the other thing that is true, and we talk about this when we when we talk about these, the, these three ways that we suffer because of things that have happened to us, because of things that we do to ourselves, but also this third category, of how we suffer when we are going to choose to move toward the light. There will be a certain sense in which, like Eustace's dragon character in Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, when we choose to follow the king, when we choose to move toward reality, uh, we find uh, that we're going to have to peel off layer after layer after layer of addiction, of complacency, of all the grudges I've enjoyed holding over the course of my life that actually is just another way for me to cover over my suffering. And instead, I name these. And to do this, to name by peeling off my addictions, peeling off all my of me, uh, I discover that there is a certain suffering that takes place in that regard. And at the same time, uh, if I am going to so choose to do this in the context of a vulnerable community, which is the people, which is the body of Jesus, we're going to find that that whole process uh, actually transforms and redeems suffering while we're in the middle of it. The the biblical references uh, are are central to your work, and one thing I want listeners to know is you're a practicing psychiatrist. You, you are you're a respected member of the field. But when I read the opening pages, I was, I was a little astonished that you take as your uh, you know, framework, your map of treatment, not a contemporary theorist of, of the psyche or school of thought, but the fifth chapter of Paul's letter to the church uh, at Rome. Uh, one, before I ask, why is that passage so important to you? But but first, are you pretty unique in in psychiatry with a, a, a Judeo biblical focus, or is that maybe a little more common than a lot of us realize? Well, I think um, you know, uh, in in some respects, Mark, uh, in 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 uh, tipping the cap to Tom Holland's work in his book Dominion, um, I think that the, you know the West is far more Christian than it would like to give itself than it would like to acknowledge, just in terms of its ethics, in terms of how we even think about the world, all those things. Yeah. We are far, we are far more, we, we can't get away with, even with all of our, um, you know, protests, you know, to the contrary. Uh, and so in, in, in some respects, I would say, uh, I stand on the shoulders of Paul, whether I like it or not, even if I weren't a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, I, but then I would also say that, you know, some would say that, you know, uh, you're a psychiatrist, you're a believer, and you talk about we're leading with Paul's language instead of we're, we're not leading 
with uh, we're, we're not leading with Freud. We're not leading with neuro. You know, we're not leading with neuropsychopharmacology. I would say no, uh, because science uh, tells us about the mechanics of how the mind works, but science doesn't tell us anything about the mind's purpose. Science doesn't. Science doesn't. As Michael Polanyi once famously said, "There's no such thing as science. There are only scientists." And it's only scientists who tell us things. Science doesn't tell us anything. And with that in mind, uh, and I, when I'm training clinicians, I say, look, the most important thing that you have to be attuned to is your anthropology. Like, wh what does it mean to you about what it means to be human? Yeah. That's where we begin. And then we apply the science, the mechanics to this, which is crucially important. And one of the beautiful things about interpersonal neurobiology is that it gives us a mechanical way of understanding the anthropology that we believe is true. And so when we come to Paul, and you start those those glorious opening words. Therefore, since through faith and justification, we have peace with God, we start to look, what, what is faith? I mean, what does that even mean? Like to the modern, like, I don't know, what is faith other than just some word that gets used in some old ancient religious thing? Except that in the world of uh, attachment research, we see that faith is really about trusting relationships. And that's not just a metaphor. These are embodied experiences. And we would say that's the very thing that Paul had to have had before he wrote those verses. He's just not writing this stuff because he's a really bright guy. He had something happen to him on that road to Damascus. And then you've got a lot of people that you've been trying to persecute who suddenly are treating you with loving kindness. <laughs> uh, what's that about? <laughs> like it's giving him an embodied real time material world encounter with the Jesus that meets him and somewhere says to him, well, why are you doing this to me? And so we're suddenly, uh, we, we are given this opportunity, especially with the discoveries that we're having in, in neuroscience in the last 20 to 30 years, we're given the opportunity to say, oh my goodness, the mechanics of God's materially you know, in, in, endowed world that we live in, that God has blessed and said is good and has given purpose, uh, that world is also speaking to us about what it means to suffer. The, you know, the mechanics of attachment, the mechanics of our bodies, what it means for us to this grace in which we now stand. Paul had lots of other language he could have used. He doesn't, but he talks about grace as being something in which we stand. And so throughout the book, I'm helping the reader. My, my intention is to walk the reader through the mechanics of what's actually happening here that Paul's writing about that necessarily had to have taken place before we could ever get to a theology of suffering. Yeah. Do, do you take, you, you talked about forms of attachment and trust. Uh, do you, do you take someone's faith, an adult's faith, maybe one that has been perverted or suppressed, ruined in, in some way. Do you go back to the child's early trust or mistrust of the parent? Well, we, we certainly go back to parts of us that are pretty young. You know, when Jesus said, uh, look, if y'all don't change and become like little children, heaven's not going to work for you. Uh, that comment and others like it in the Gospels has far-reaching implications for what it means for us to pay attention to what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And to uh, if, if I'm... If I'm not paying attention to the way my uh, wounds, my traumas, even small t traumas, um, have, if I'm not paying attention to that unfinished business in childhood, 
whether it's my parents or my siblings or my aunts and uncles or teachers or whoever we're talking about, the way I was formed to believe relationally this is how the world works, I can't somehow magically like transfer my brain that believes that about relationships and then go to the Bible and somehow believe that my relationship with Jesus is going to be different. You know, like He's going to have to deal with the same brain that I've been dealing with myself. And so this becomes one of the more powerful ways that people have come to know healing and come to know transformation even in their relationship with God in, in our work here in the last 15 years. Because as they come to understand that, oh, my gosh, like I'm actually not so much angry with God. I've still got I'm, I'm really angry with my parents or I'm angry with this thing that happened to me. This is not about a thing that I'm projecting onto God. I mean, that's what I've been doing. Mm-hmm. But you can't really separate our embodied experience in the world from our experience with God. And this is where interpersonal neurobiology has become really helpful in giving people fresh ways to understand what they're really reading when they pick up the text. You really like that opening phrase in Paul's chapter five, quote, since we have been justified by faith. Do, do, you, do you bring that to your, to your patients directly? Do, do you tell them well, about this? Oh, well, well, I mean, I mean, again, I mean, I think we, we talk as we say, look, we're, we're, we're dealing with Jesus in, in the consultation room. We're dealing with Jesus all the time, whether or not we, how, how explicit we are about this and the way that we talk about this in the same way that Jesus found lots and lots and lots of ways to talk about himself without talking about himself. Yeah. And this is what we're trying to do because we are aware that we live in a world in in the West in which the traditional language of faith is it has just kind of faded into the woodwork. It doesn't mean much to people anymore. But neuroscience, as it turns, I you know who knows how long its moment is going to last. But we live in a time where people pay attention to what neuroscience and neuroscientists and data tends to tell us. And so when we can begin to associate that clearly with what we're reading about in the text, it wakes people's minds up to what the text could be saying that they could have never seen before. Right. Let me ask about another element of your, of your practice here uh, that has some, some religious, uh, religious language in it. You speak of, quote, confessional communities uh, that, that you've developed uh, as part of your practice. How do those work? And... Part of the goal there is developing this deep trust. Mm-hmm. So how does this yeah. work? Well, it works uh, fundamentally. It begins, Mark, with the notion that uh, human beings are continually, we are all, all 8 billion of us, are continually being formed. Whether we like it or not, the question is, who or what is forming me? And I am most powerfully formed, ultimately, by other human relationships. Now, we might say I'm being formed by my iPhone. We might say I'm being formed by Netflix. And we talk about it in these abstract terms of objects in the material world. But behind all that are going to be principalities and powers or other human powers that are relationally intending certain things to be true about the world. And they are moving, they are offering those things to me with an intention. And I'm being formed in that way. And so the real question is then, ultimately, what is the community that's going to form you? And so we have found that in psychotherapy, even, that the capacity to be formed by one person, a psychotherapist, 
is categorically different than if you're being formed by eight people at the same time. Hmm. And if all eight people are entering into that space, this would be what also the writer of the Hebrews would call a great cloud of witnesses, people who are bearing witness to my life. And, you, you know, you could say, well, gosh, I don't have to be in a religious community, let alone the church, to be able to say that everybody is living in the world with a certain number of witnesses that are bearing witness to your life. Who are the people that are telling you what is true about who you are? Everybody, all of us. This is the life that we all live. And so the question becomes, who are those people and what is that community? And so this notion of calling it confessional is an illusion. It it alludes to church. It alludes to faith. But it is not confession in the terms that we might typically, at least in North America, think about that. We're not talking about the confession of sin. We're talking about the confessions. What, what, do, I, what do I say is true about my life, whether I'm a Christian or not? What, am I conf- what is true about who I am? If I live in a world in which I believe, like uh, at, the end of the, at the end of the day, there's nothing left, like we're, we're all just material beings that are going to return to the dust and that's it, that's my confession. But what we're saying is that we believe that if you live in a world that is shaped by the story of the gospel, by the biblical narrative, we are, we are living in a world in which God longs for us to become like him, to become outposts of generative beauty and goodness. And for me to be formed into that kind of a person requires being in a particular kind of community. And so to tell my story more truly means I name what I long for, I name my griefs, I name my traumas, in order for those things, I name my suffering, in order for healing to take place, in order for boundaries to be set, in order for me to learn in that context how I say no to my addictions, of which there are many, in order for me then to be optimally able to create beauty and goodness in the world, whether it's in my family or in my job or in my school, my community, and what have you. And in in this way, we are telling what is most true, what is most beautiful about our lives and about the world. Yeah. You you cast many of the conflicts and tensions in a person's life to explicitly a war with God, one that the individual doesn't often see in in those terms and so part of your work is sort of reorienting them to that to that theater uh, of Mm -hmm. battle Mm -hmm. and that progress really relies upon a particular surrender to to jesus Mm -hmm. you say Mm -hmm. now you know i i I think isn't this the most wonderful relieving miraculous thing to do but Mm -hmm. do many of your patients find this one of the hardest things to do. Well, you know, Mark, it's it's so true. I, I tell people, look, we all love the idea of being loved until love actually shows up at my doorstep. Because my idea of being loved, my idea of Jesus coming is, yes, I lay my burdens at his feet He because he said, all who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. Um, And yet when I get there, he says, now here, here's a cross for you to pick up. He doesn't say, here's, you know, here's the fob for your Tesla. And, 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 and so this is, this is a little disorienting for me because love is not coming to my door to punish me. Love is coming though, to make demands. And the demands are, I want you to be willing to uh, love your neighbor. 
I want you to be willing to be received my love. And so we, we look at this, we say like, this is not easy to be loved. We talked about how we human beings, you look around, we're not very good at loving each other. Like, mm -hmm. just look around, like how good are, we're not very good at this. But we are even less capable, oddly enough and surprising to many people, what we are even less capable of doing is allowing ourselves to be loved. And at first glance, you're like, that doesn't make sense. I mean, like if love were to show up, I would think like, I, I would like, I would open my door. I would open my windows. I would you, you have the keys to my house again until he actually shows up. Lewis's notion in the end of mere Christianity where, you know, you've invited, invited Jesus to come and stay in your bungalow and you go off to work and you come home and the front porch is missing. And, all, and, the, and the side of the house has a gaping hole because he's in this reconstruction. And you're like, what are you doing to me? Hmm. And this notion of being transformed, th these, these confessional communities are places where people come and you got to bring your work bucket, your lunch bucket, because you're coming to work. No. You're not coming to be coddled. You're not coming just to be taken care of or to be told that what you want is exactly what you're going to get when you want it, how you want it. You're coming to be loved. And here's the challenge, as, as I see, you know, Mark, it, when, when we, again, when we return to the first pages of the Bible, uh, wounding that the snake uh, offered, that wounding that the snake offered to the woman, to the woman and the man, it takes place in a context of intimacy. Hmm. And we have a deep memory and an awareness that uh, the longing to be loved, my, which is what I long in, in the deepest place, the longing for my suffering to be relieved requires my willingness to allow Jesus to come into that space. But I have a deep memory that intimacy is dangerous, hmm. that intimacy is the very thing that is responsible for my having been wounded in the first place. It's me being naked in the garden and God taking his good old time, thank you very much, in his walk for the day, allowing the snake to come in. And somehow my husband or my wife didn't see fit or do enough to keep it out of the garden. And here we are. Hmm. And at the same time that I long for all of my wounds of intimacy to be healed, if that's going to happen, that's where we're going to have to go. And that is a terrifying prospect. And so at the same time, we had many patients that come in who I, I said, look, they're far more interested actually in being not sick right. than they are in being well. Right. And it's, so it's, it's, so when Jesus says, look, the gate is narrow. Right. The road is narrow. Right. Uh, last, last question. Um, you, you pose a frustrating question, actually. As the patient progresses and names things ever more clearly, why doesn't the suffering just end? I mean, why, why do we have to accept the continuance of some pain? What's your answer? Well, you know, Mark, I'm a, I'm a, I, I, in, in terms of what actually happens in the world, I'm a big believer in uh, inviting people to live in the real world, not a make-believe world. And so one might say, why is it that gravity still persists? 
I fell down and skinned my knee, and now my knee is healed. And why does gravity still persist? Well, because that's, I mean, uh, beyond, I, like, I, I don't know. I mean, like, that's the actual world we live in. And I would say that when we ask that question, the question is really not so much a question because, like, even if I had the answer, if, even if I gave you the answer, like, here's why shame or why, why, why suffering persists, that's not going to stop your suffering. My answer is not going to be adequate. And so in many respects, that we ask the question is a way for me to avoid actually doing the work. Instead of just saying, what I'm really longing for is the very thing that God said that he wants to bring, and that is presence. This first comment in the second page of the Bible, it's not good for the man to be alone, becomes the hub around which the entire wheel of history turns. Hmm. This notion that everything that we do, that is that we would call sinful, is a movement away from relationship, both between you and me and between me and God and you and God and me and my kids and so forth and so on. And the whole notion of Emmanuel, that God is coming to be with us, to be present in our suffering and so transform it by drawing our attention much more to him than to the pain that we have, which does not take my pain away, but ultimately gives me a very different story to tell about it. Very good. The book is The Deepest Place, Suffering and the Formation of Hope. Dr. Thompson, thank you for joining us. Mark, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure.